Good morning, church. I hope you're having a blessed morning, and I'd like to uh, just thank you for being here uh, this morning and and, uh, listening to this sermon. And uh, we are going to be in John chapter 11. Uh, I'm going to be reading from verse 45 through 54. And uh, this sermon is, uh, is, is titled, God is Always in Control. So we're going to be talking about the sovereignty of God this morning and, and uh, how we as his people can be, can be blessed uh, by that and have security in that. But before we get, begin, let's go ahead and go to the Lord um, with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we have, even though we cannot meet together in person Uh, We thank you that we have technology to where your word can still get out to your sheep and uh, that your church can be blessed. Just pray for everyone who is listening here. Uh, I pray that you just uh, open their hearts, open their minds and speak to them, Father, and that uh, they walk in obedience to your word. We pray for each other, for those who are in need um, of, of whatever it is they are in need of, those who need Uh, physical healing, those who need emotional healing, and all of us who need spiritual healing. Uh, May you bless us by your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and give thanks. Amen. So as I said, we are in John chapter 11, verse 45 through 54, and I am going to start with the reading of the word. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them that Jesus, what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That is the reading of God's word. Uh, this sermon has blessed me this week. I, as I have studied, um, I, I've just been blessed by uh, the security that, that we find in God's word, uh, in God's sovereignty. God is in control of all things, and I think many times we forget about that. And uh, I think this is a good word for what we are going through uh, today. There's a proverb, and the proverb is 16, uh, Proverbs 16.9. It says, the heart of a man plans his ways. But the Lord establishes his steps. Now, that verse reminds us that life seldom turns out the way uh, we plan it. Um, Many times we think in our head how things are going to turn out, how things are going to go, and they just don't go that way. Um, A good example right now is is, uh, what we're dealing with in the here and now with the the whole coronavirus and uh, the epidemic that uh, we are all, or the pandemic that we are all uh, facing. Um, another good example is our passage here and how the disciples are trying to figure out and trying to uh, work their way through um, how Jesus um, is going to rule over his kingdom. Uh, They didn't get the path of the cross 
And they didn't understand the path of the cross, but through it all, God had a plan. And God was determined to bring that plan to fruition. Now, in life, there's always things that we don't expect. Um, there's things that we don't expect, and there's things that we have to figure out. Um, like I said before, case in point is the coronavirus pandemic that the whole world is trying to figure out right now. Uh, for things like this, there's really nothing that we can do except for have faith. We, we have to have faith, and we have to look to God, because we know that when we look to God, uh, we find that our help comes from him. He is the maker of heaven and earth, and uh, he is the one who holds the whole world in his hands. And we also have to remind ourselves not to lose hope. That is one of the biggest challenges that we face as God's people, that we must remember not to lose hope. Even if things um, get really, really bad, we must believe that God will be faithful to us. And the reason why we can believe that is because his word tells us that. His word ensures us that uh, God will be faithful to his people. It is a covenant promise that he made with his people from the beginning, and he will carry it to completion in Christ Jesus. So no matter what, um, as God's people, we must press forward toward the goal that God has called us to. Now, the reason why we can do this, no matter what we face, is because we know that God, he is in control of all things. And the wonderful thing about that is that he is in control of things um, in heaven and also on earth. And that's why the Lord, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, Jesus mentions that, that God's will be done in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, that is something that we ourselves uh, can hang our hat on and we can hang our hope in. Uh, when we, when, in speaking of God, he directs everything through the work of his providence. And everything that happens has a purpose. Now here in our story, we see uh, Jesus' gradual descent to the cross. We see everything happen from a very high level. And this is not something that the disciples could see uh, when it was happening to them. But from here on out in John's gospel, it may seem that things are getting out of God's control. It may seem that things are slipping away, that maybe the plan itself is, is kind of crumbling. But we must understand that God is never out of control. In fact, everything that is happening was already determined to happen, and everything was still in his control. God always has a plan, and he always has a purpose um, and, and it doesn't matter what it is, if it's the good, if it's the bad, if it's the ugliness of life, God always has a plan and he always has a purpose. So I want to look a little bit deeper at this text and see uh, what the plan and purpose is behind what is happening here in John chapter 11, verses 45 through 54. The first thing that we see is we see man's suppression of the truth. The first, in, in this first half of the Gospel of John, uh, it includes seven signs, or, or rather, seven miracles. And these seven signs, or seven miracles, were performed by Jesus. And they were wonderful, and they were powerful. And the reason why they were performed was to prove his deity, for him to show that he was the Son of God, and also that he was the Savior of the world. Now, 
these signs take place from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 11. And I want to go through them with you just so that you can see the buildup of these signs and, and how they lead to where we are at today. And first in John chapter 2, we see Jesus turn water into wine. Then in John chapter 4, we see Jesus heal the royal official's son in Capernaum. Then in John chapter 5, Jesus heals the uh, paralytic in Bethesda. Then in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. John chapter 6 also shows us how Jesus walked on water. Then John chapter 9, Jesus heals the man who is born blind. And then finally, in John chapter 11, we see uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from, Lazarus from the grave. Now, as we look at each of these signs and we look at each of, these, each of these miracles, we see the power of Christ in them. We see the power of God in them. And these signs set Jesus apart from anybody else in Israel's history. It's a wonderful thing to see. Even Israel's greatest prophet, Moses, could not and did not compare to the majesty and the power of Christ and what Christ was doing. I love how the Bible looks back at these moments and points us to the fact that Jesus was greater than everybody else. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. I want to read those for you. Uh, it says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify the things that were to be spoken later. But listen to this. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. I love that passage because it tells us and shows us the difference between Moses, the one who was created, and Christ, the one who is the son of God. So we clearly see through his works that Jesus was the Son of God and Savior of the world. In fact, if John were to lay out everything that Jesus did, I think we would just be floored by it. But he did not. There were many things that Jesus did that John did not record in his gospel. And the reason why he didn't record them was because he had recorded what he needed to show that Jesus was the Son of God and Savior of the world. Um, it was never meant there. It was never an intention of John's to record everything that happened. We see this in John 20 verses 30 through 31 it says now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I love that verse, too, because it shows us the purpose of what these signs were pointing to, the purpose of, of why Jesus performed these signs. Again, they were to show the people his divinity, uh, that he was the Son of God and Savior of the world. Now, through these signs, I believe, and I hope that you agree with me, that Jesus made it completely evident who he truly was. But some people still didn't believe. Now, it's kind of hard to think of, 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 of that and, and how people, even though Jesus did, did these wonderful miracles and how people did not believe, um, it's, kind of, it's kind of hard to grasp that, but 
so many years later today, and there are still people who do not believe. Even though God has provided his word to testify about himself. And not only that, he has also made himself plainly known to everyone. The Bible says through his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So the question is, why don't some believe in Christ as Savior and Lord? I think the answer is found in our text. The answer is because people suppress the truth. They suppress the truth about God. And the same suppression of the truth is happening here in, at the end of John chapter 11. You see, the raising of Lazarus was a crucial, a crucial event in the first half of John. It was very crucial, and it seems like all the signs, all the miracles led up to that one miracle. But it was also a turning point in Jesus' ministry. This was when the Jewish religious establishment finally decided that Jesus had to go. He had to go because his popularity was getting too much and his following was getting too much. Instead of recognizing the glorious work of Christ, the Jewish religious leaders decided that they were going to put him to death. And that was the reason why in our text that the council was brought together Uh, The council was basically another word for the Sanhedrin, which was the court of law of that day. You see, they suppressed the truth about Jesus because they were more concerned about their own glory instead of the glory of God. Well, not much has changed since the beginning of time. Because when we go back to the very beginning of the Bible and we look at Genesis, and we see the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, we see that Adam and Eve did the same thing. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit because they wanted to be like God. That's what the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3. They wanted to be like God, and certain things about the fruit enticed them. The Bible says when they saw the fruit, that the fruit was good for food, that it was delightful to the eyes, and that it made one wise, they ate it because they wanted to be like God. I like to compare that to what is happening here in our passage. When the religious leaders saw the glorious works of Christ, they didn't recognize him as God because they saw their power over the people slipping away. They didn't want to lose their glory. They wanted to keep it, so then therefore they suppressed the truth about Christ. See, they were afraid that he would amass such a great following that it would threaten the power of the Roman government, and the Roman government would come and take their nation away. That's why they say in verse 48, John eleven forty-eight, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. When I look at this passage and I I start to think about this story, I have a question for everyone. That question is this, how many today suppress the truth about God 
in order to maintain control of their lives? How many? There are so many that don't believe in organized religion because it interferes with what they want to do. They don't want to submit to a church. They don't want to submit to elders. They only want to do what they want to do. There are others who don't believe in the supremacy of God's word. Because if they did, that means they would have to obey it. They'd rather just go with what their heart is telling them. Or what their gut is leading them to. I think the epistle of 2 Timothy paints the picture of these people very well. 2 Timothy chapter 3 Verses 1 through 5, the Bible says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, Reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Now, I consider this a prophecy because we see it happening today. But that's not the shocking thing about it. What's shocking about it is that this is not a prophecy only about the unbelieving people of the world It is also a prophecy of unbelievers in the church who try to pass as believers. That's what's shocking about it. The good thing, though, is that God hasn't lost control. The good thing is that God sees and he knows. Just like in the garden, just like in John chapter 11, and just like today. God sees and knows. You see, he is the good shepherd and he knows his sheep by name. And he also knows those who are not of his sheepfold. He knows that they come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Again, I remind everybody that for us it may seem that it may seem very troubling. With everything, with everything happening in, in the universal church today, in the church worldwide, it may seem very troubling. It may seem something, it may, it may look like something we have to worry about. It may seem like God has lost control. But again, we have to remember that he is always in control and there's always a plan and a purpose to everything. The second thing about our passage is that God has a way of turning things around when we don't expect him to. He sees the hearts of men, and he knows when men are suppressing the truth. Nothing gets by him. And God has a way of using evil for good, and we see that in our passage. Let's reread verses 49 through 52. It says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, what's interesting here is that Caiaphas was the highest ranking official of the Sanhedrin. He was the high priest. And he spoke all these words. He spoke these words that I just read to you. He spoke them to calm everyone down because everyone there, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were all worried that people would follow Christ. And as I said before, the Roman government would come and take their nation away. And his prophetic words were, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And this they adopted as their plan. They would kill Jesus so that the Romans wouldn't take their nation away. What does that mean? Well, it means that they would kill Jesus so that they could maintain their status, their wealth, and their way of life. They would kill Jesus because they wanted to keep their glory. They were not concerned about the glory of God. See, the following, this crowd that Jesus was accumulating I, I do not believe was the real threat. I believe it was an excuse. In some weird way, it was their justification to commit this great sin. Because in their own minds, they thought they were actually serving a greater purpose by killing Jesus. By spilling his blood, they thought that God's nation, Israel, would be saved. So they considered themselves heroes who were serving a higher power. In reality, though, they were only saving themselves as rulers of Israel. See, through all of this, there is something else happening. God is still in control. And what's amazing is that God was using the foolishness of man to accomplish his will. And he does that all the time. 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, what the Sanhedrin meant for evil in killing Jesus, God meant for good in giving Jesus as an atonement for, his, for, as an atonement for the sins of his people. That's why John says in verses 51 and 52 that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, when we look at this, it would seem fitting for us as we are looking at something that's been documented and passed and we have time to look at it and, 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 and just consume it, critique it. It would seem very fitting and convenient for us to look at this verse and say, how dare they justify their actions of, kill, of, of putting Christ to death? It'd be easy for us and very convenient for us to say they were such evil people. My question to us is, 
how are we any different than they? Yes, they were the ones who killed Jesus. They were the ones who put him on the cross. But listen, everyone is to blame for the reason why Christ had to die. There are many within God's church, and again, his universal church today, who view themselves too highly. We need to all keep in mind and remember what the Bible says about our true nature, our nature without Christ. Romans 3 says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Christians, we cannot forget our nature outside of Christ. But thanks be to God. While we were yet sinners, the Bible says that Christ died for us. If it wasn't for Christ giving himself over for us as a sacrifice for our sins, then listen, and listen very carefully, we would still all be guilty of sin, and our punishment would be death through the wrath of God. Instead of death, we, those who believe in Christ, the church, we have received abundant life. Christ said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The Bible also says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, we, the church, might become the righteousness of God. That's from 2 Corinthians 5.21. You see, Jesus paid the penalty of our sin so that we could be forgiven. I love 2 Timothy 5.21 because that verse helps us to understand what was really going on here at the end of chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. The hands of men were planning to murder Jesus. And again, it looks like God does not have things under control. But at the same time, the will of God was preparing a perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of his people. At the end of John chapter 11, it talks about the the children who are scattered. We are those children who that verse speaks of. We We were scattered abroad and we have been brought near through the blood of Christ. This should help us to remember that God is always in control And that he always has a plan and he always has a purpose for everything that happens. So, what are we to do? Well, I think the biggest lesson that we can get out of this passage is that we we must always trust God. We, We should never doubt him 
he has shown himself to be true all of our lives. When we look at his word, he has shown himself to be true from the very beginning of time. You can't help it. It's who he is. Instead of doubting, instead of worry, instead of anxiety, we need to trust God always. You see, Jesus calls the devil, he calls him a murderer and he calls him the father of lies. I want to read John chapter 8 to you, verse 44. It says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The reason why I read that passage to you is because it was through his lies that Adam and Eve were deceived. And it is through his lies, his lies that we are deceived. And we need to be very careful that we do not believe the lies of the enemies. Now, what is the lie of the enemy? Well, one of the biggest lies out there is that wealth, power, and prestige are worth everything. That is one of the biggest lies that the enemy has taken over the world with. The truth is that there is nothing more valuable than the salvation and security that we have in Christ. Mark 8, verses 36 to 37 say this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return of his soul? Christian, do not suppress the truth any longer. There is no way that wealth, power, and prestige even come close to the value of your soul. We need to be about our Father's business. And it doesn't matter what's going on in this world, we are always about our Father's business. So I ask you, I tell you, I plead with you, do not suppress the truth any longer. You were were made to serve God with all that you are and all that you have. Whatever it is that you are idolizing at this moment, I want to let you know that it is preventing you from serving him as you should. And there's only one biblical response to that, and that is the response of repentance. You need to repent, turn away from your sin, turn towards God. There is a lot of work to do. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. It's time for everyone to repent and get to work. Second thing, though, under the whole category of trusting God always, I think this one makes a lot of sense for today. If God can make good use out of what the devil means for evil, then why not trust God in all circumstances? Even in those circumstances where it seems like there's no hope, why not trust God? 
because he can do all things. See, another great deception from the devil is getting Christians to doubt God's care for them. There are Christians walking around everywhere, just losing focus of that, that God is our good shepherd, that he cares for us like no one else, that the work he began in us, he's going to carry it to completion. This mainly happens when we have a problem that we cannot automatically fix or we ourselves can't fix. Worry turns into anxiety and faith turns into fear. Now, when we look at Jesus' ministry and his time on earth, here at this moment in John chapter 11, we see that it takes a time, it takes a turn for the worse. But then, we also see him continuing to do what he needs to do, continuing to do his father's work. He showed us a perfect example of trusting in God to provide what he needed when he needed it. And what was meant for evil, we see in our passage that God turned into good. Now, I don't want to limit it to our passage today because when we look throughout the whole Bible, God does a miraculous thing with evil. He always turns it to good. He always turns it for the good of his purpose. Now, does that excuse us to go and do evil? Of course not. If you think that, then you need to go back to uh, the gospel or the epistle of Romans and read through what Paul says about that. That's not that's not who we are anymore. We don't do evil. Instead, we live our lives to please God. But we still have to acknowledge the power of God and the power he has over evil. Now, I want you to think about something. Think about the pain in your life. I I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you're going through now. But think about the worst thing that you've ever gone through. And think about how in that pain, God has grown you. Think about the blessings that came from that pain, from that suffering, from that struggle. Think about the growth that occurred in you. See, my friends, there is a purpose to our pain. There is a purpose to our suffering. There is a purpose to our struggle. And we have to remember, no matter what we are facing, no matter what we are going through, God's mercy is always sufficient for us. Through the good, the bad, and ugliness of life, we must remember that we serve the Good Shepherd. He knows us by name. He has promised to lead us home no matter if we walk through green pastures, if we walk by quiet waters, or if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He will remain faithful to us. And we can have hope, and we can hold on to the wonderful promise that God has given us, that we as his people who place our faith in Christ, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, and the only reason why we will is because of him and his care for us. He will not lose one of us.
if you are in Christ, don't ever forget that, no matter what you face. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word, and I pray that it's just a blessing to your church. and It gives them encouragement, helps them through uh, what it is that they are facing today. Father, just pray for those who are listening um, that are outside of our church. I pray that it is also a blessing to them. And if anyone is listening that does not know Christ, I pray that your word was faithful and that your spirit spoke to their hearts and showed them the importance that Jesus is for them or to them. I pray that they repent of their sins. I pray that they hold on to Christ as Savior and Lord. And I pray, Father, that they live for you from this day forward. May your spirit do his work as he sees fit. In Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. Amen.